My talk this afternoon is, is entitled Wahhabism in the World, uh, the Origins, Evolution, and Global Impact of Saudi Dawah. As James mentioned, this is a topic that anyone who follows the contemporary Muslim world and Saudi Arabia has heard something about. It's a topic that's been discussed and debated for decades. Um, and it's one that I have kind of followed uh, on the sidelines of my own work, um, both professionally and, and personally as well. I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia myself, um, so it's a, it's a topic of, of particular personal interest to me as well. Um, in Washington, D.C., where I have lived and worked for the last 20 years, there's a very, has been a very polarizing discussion about this topic. And it's a topic, it's a debate that tends to take place at one of two extremes. On one extreme, you have a camp that argues that uh, the, the propagation of Saudi religion around the world um, is the source and the root of all nefarious things, from ISIS to Al-Qaeda, um, and on the other extreme, you have those who essentially kind of whitewash the issue and say, well, you know, it's, it's conservative religion, but there's nothing particularly problematic about it. Um, I, I don't think that either of these two images or either of these two extremes is accurate, as is usually the case. The truth of the matter is far more complex, far messier, and really occurs in shades of gray somewhere in between these two poles. And so the presentation that I'm going to give you this afternoon is based on a larger project that I'm currently directing with generous funding from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And that project is entitled The Geopolitics of Religious Soft Power. And the purpose of the project is to comparatively study the various ways in which Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey incorporate various forms of religious outreach. Um, into their foreign policy conduct. Um, within the project, I have, in addition to leading the project overall, I have particular interest and responsibility for the Saudi Arabia uh, component of it. So what I'm going to present to you today is essentially an overview, an analytical portrait of the Saudi global da'wah apparatus. Its origins, its evolution, key actors, organizations, entities that are part of it, um, looking at the kinds of activities that they undertake, uh, and doing a whistle-stop tour around various locales in the world where these influences have had some effect. And then also, I'll be transmitting to you a, some early findings from the research that I've done, some, some patterns that are beginning to emerge from, from the work. Um, just to calibrate your expectations accordingly, um, I'll say right up front that I'm, I'm not here today to give a definitive answer to the question of whether uh, Saudi-funded proselytization has a direct causal impact on the dynamics around um, terrorism and violent extremism, which is one of the key questions that many who come to this topic ask. And it is indeed something that I'm trying to get a handle on in the research, but it's not actually the primary focus of the, the, the research. Um, I will nonetheless reflect on it a little bit. I'd also like to say that given given where I'm presenting this 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 talk, 
that I'm going to give you a detailed overview of um, the impact of Saudi Dawah in Southeast Asia. Uh, I'm afraid that's not the case. Um, I really want to kind of provide you with a sense of the larger global context in which this work occurs. Um, in the book that is coming out of the project on this topic, which I'll tell you a little bit more in, in a moment, um, uh, there is some very specific detailed case study work done on Southeast Asia and Indonesia in, in particular. So this part of the world is, um, is indeed being looked at in the um, larger project. So that's our title slide. So given that I'm employing this term Wahhabism as an organizing principle for this work, I, I think it's useful to kind of pause for a moment and say something about that particular term. Um, it, it's, it's a tricky one because you don't find people generally who self-identify as Wahhabis. Right? This is a term that tends to be projected onto people or used in description of them often carrying a somewhat derogatory connotation. Um, what I'm calling Wahhabism, for purposes of this research and this talk, uh, is more accurately described as um, Salafism. And indeed, Wahhabism is a form of Salafi Islam. Um, and to my mind, what what, what, what sort of justifies the use of the term Wahhabism is the, the sort of uh, national specification that you get through that terminology. So I'm thinking of Salafism here for our purposes as, as a, a particularly Saudi variant of Salafism that obviously has its ideational and ideological roots in the work of the 18th century Islamic reform scholar Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Um, uh, now, is, is Wahhabism simply Salafism that takes place or is done and created and promulgated from Saudi Arabia or does it have specific features? I, I think it is possible to identify um, particular characteristics of Wahhabi theological discourse as a specific form of Salafism um, that have to do with the circumstances of the emergence of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab's ideas, and more specifically, the initial political uses to which they were put um, in the service of the creation of the initial Saudi state in the 18th century. And it, I think, inculcated within the Saudi variant of Salafism a particular emphasis on focus on the idea of um, identifying moral categories into which individuals should be placed in order to know uh, how they should be treated. What were the ethical parameters around which individuals, uh, how you can treat given individuals based on your assessment of the extent to which they are um, conforming to re religious re requirements. And I would contend that that um, that a, 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 a <coughs> emphasis on those kinds of questions and issues has been a consistent feature um, of um, of the the religio political discourse of the Saudi religious establishment. So that, that's what I'm getting at when I talk about Wahhabism. It's it's Salafism 
that comes from Saudi Arabia. Um, the story of Saudi Dawah is one that is, uh, begins in the 1960s um, as significant hydrocarbon revenues come to be available within the kingdom. Um, uh, and it's a phenomenon, uh, this, this sort of Saudi international propagation uh, of religion that uh, can actually be periodized. And we, we, can, we can begin to kind of look at patterns and characteristics that define different phases of this work. Um, for example, I think in its most earliest uh, formulations, it is driven uh, by a combination of a genuine sense of religious obligation on the part of the royal family and other political and emerging economic elites in Saudi Arabia, a genuine sense that as the country that hosts the two holiest cities in Islam, um, that, that Saudi Arabia has a particular role to play in global Islam. Um, at the same time, one can't ignore the fact that there was, even in this early period, certain geopolitical utility that arose from religious propagation. Um, those of you who know your modern Middle Eastern history will, of course, know that during this period, the dominant ideological trend in the region um, is the sort of secular nationalist pan-Arabism of Gamal Abdel Nasser. So, you know, at that time, um, if Saudi Arabia had a chief regional rival, it was Egypt. And so, um, in that regard, Saudi Arabia's support for and propagation of religion was seen as a useful counterbalance to more secular nationalist influences emanating um, from e Egypt. That geopolitical dimension of the issue, however, um, uh, changes significantly over the years and quite dramatically uh, from the 1980s onwards when uh, in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, of course, uh, Tehran emerges as Riyadh's new chief rival, um, and indeed the sort of nature and shape and the locus uh, of, of um, emphasis of Saudi geopolitical da'wah is calibrated anew in order to counterbalance influences coming out of um, Iran. More on that certainly in a moment. Um, it's, it's important because, um, as you can already see on the final bullet point in my periodization here, um, that, that focus on Iran continues to be a major um, driving factor uh, in, in current um, forms and manifestations of Saudi Dawah. But it's, it's not always geopolitical. It's not always about trying to compete with one or another country. We have to also take into account broader shifts in global religious demography in order to understand some of the push and pull factors here. For example, in the 1990s, those of you who are familiar with trends in global Christianity will be familiar with the phenomenal growth of evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity in the global South, in South America, and for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa. So in the 1990s, um, the, the, the enormous growth, for example, in West Africa of, of Pentecostal Christianity um, led uh, Muslim groups and organizations of that country uh, to reach out to, to the Saudis 
uh, and, and essentially ask for help in order to be able to compete with this rapidly growing uh, conservative Christian trend that was emerging in West Africa. So, who matters in this apparatus? Who are the key players and actors? I, I think one of the most important things that this research will hopefully do is to open up the black box of Saudi Dawa somewhat. Because you'll notice that when we talk about this issue, when you hear it discussed, people will rather kind of glibly and quickly say, well, that, you know, that's Saudi funding for religion. That's Saudi funded. That mosque was built by the Saudis. The Saudis funded this. Well, Saudi religion is having this kind of effect. And what I want to say is, let's pause for a moment and, and, and interrogate and unpack that notion of Saudi and Saudi funding. Because what we see very quickly, once you actually begin to look into the details of it, is that there is a wide range of actors involved. There's a wide range of Saudi and Saudi-linked entities that are involved in this activity. And what is certainly lacking is any sort of centralized command and control structure. Indeed, what is very interesting and what has sort of started to emerge out of the work that we're doing, and I'll say more about this later, is the fact that sometimes the Saudi entities and organizations that are responsible for providing funding or undertaking proselytizing activities um, are actually sometimes competing with each other domestically. Um, uh, and, and indeed, sometimes what one observes outside the kingdom's borders in terms of Saudi religious influences is a reflection of domestic political competition between various government ministries and private organizations and semi-public organizations. It's, it's the reflection of those domestic political competitions playing out uh, in different countries. So let me briefly kind of touch on some of the key actors here. Certainly there are official government agencies and bodies that are important players here. Uh, most prominently the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, Propagation and, and Guidance. Um, uh, but there are also, uh, at various Saudi embassies around the world, there are figures uh, who serve as religious attaches um, and have diplomatic status but are not necessarily conventional diplomats or professional diplomats. And indeed, the presence of these religious attaches um, who often report more directly to the Ministry of Islamic Affairs or elsewhere in the Saudi religious establishment rather than through the foreign ministry themselves are not always necessarily a welcome presence at the embassy. In other words, sometimes the activities that the religious attaches are undertaking um, are not necessarily things that the rest of the Saudi diplomatic mission in that country would really like them to, to, to be doing. So even within the government agencies, you have some, everyone's not on the same page always, let me put it that way. Another key uh, type of actor here are the entities that, that I, I refer to as the, as the Dawah parastatal organizations, um, most specifically the Muslim World League and the World Assembly of Muslim Youth. Um, these, these bodies are not 
official appendages or organs of the Saudi state. However, they are um, largely funded by Saudi Arabia. By custom, Saudi citizens play prominent leadership roles within them, although you can't simply reduce their agenda to that of the Saudi government. But over the last few decades, the Muslim World League and the World Assembly of Muslim Youth um, have been among the most important um, funders of mosque building, religious education activities um, in all parts of the Muslim-majority world, uh, and even uh, Muslim minority settings such as Europe as well. Then we have uh, a whole milieu of Islamic charities and humanitarian relief organizations, such as the International Islamic Relief Organization, uh, organizations like Waqaf al-Islami. Um, and I want to be clear in what I'm saying here. I'm not arguing that these should be understood primarily as dawa, as proselytizing organizations, N not at all. Uh, the vast majority of their work is indeed uh, concerned with the provision of humanitarian aid in the wake of, for example, natural disasters, famine, um, and it's very important and valuable work. That said, there are some contexts in which these humanitarian organizations operate in which the provision of humanitarian aid and assistance is accompanied by the circulation of religious materials. And in some cases, reports of, of pressure that, that aid recipients feel to consume and participate in the religious activity in order to ensure that the humanitarian relief continues to be available as, as well. In addition to these larger um, uh, relief and humanitarian organizations, there are countless family run and small private charities uh, that are part of this grand apparatus and puzzle. Um, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, with the uh, new emphasis on uh, the interdiction of terrorist financing, Saudi Arabia came under a lot of international pressure and indeed was very responsive to that pressure, came under a lot of pressure to clamp down on and begin to regulate private charities operating within its borders that, that were undertaking activities outside its borders. And by and large, they have done that. So this sector, uh, you know, by the mid-2000s was very well regulated. That said, um, I think it is fair to say that there are certain of these charities that happen to enjoy some level of patronage or political top cover uh, from members of the royal family. Uh, that means that they are not necessarily as closely regulated as other charities. So there, there is still some role for organizations like this. Um, in recent years, one of the primary conduits through which these kinds of transnational religious influence have flowed, of course, um, have been satellite television uh, and social media platforms um, owned by Saudi Arabia or bankrolled by Saudi Arabia, even if they may, you know, um, 
be based in and operate out of other countries. Um, you know, and these are you know. So, so for those of you who are familiar with the you know what we might call uh, you know borrowing the language of the transnational anthropologist Arjuna Padurai, those of you who are familiar with the global Salafi mediascape will know that there are literally dozens um, of Salafi-oriented satellite television channels, um, uh, vast uh, um, forms of online education programming, um, much of which is funded by uh, money coming out of the out of the kingdom. Final, the final um, kind of mechanism of transmission that I wanted to touch on uh, that has been kind of often discussed, although not studied in any detail, I'm hoping to do so in this new book, um, is the idea that um, the significant uh, labor migrant population that's present in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, whose origins often lie in South and indeed Southeast Asia, um, that people who have lived and worked in the kingdom for several decades um, and who have um, come into contact with and internalized Saudi religious norms will at some point go back to their countries of origin, say the you know, Silhet province of Bangladesh, um, uh, bringing with them those newly gained religious sensibilities. Um, and you know, when they get home, they've got a different way of doing religion, they've got money that they've brought with them, potentially funding and a benefactor back to, back in Saudi Arabia, um, and they begin sort of lobbying and advocacy uh, within their village, challenging and contesting kind of incumbent religious authorities uh, with kind of claims to uh, superior religious authenticity, you know, arguing that I've been in Saudi Arabia, that's where real Islam comes from, and you're doing it wrong here, and so we're gonna make some changes. Um, there are some anthropologists who have done work uh, in South Asia that have kind of anecdotally reported aspects of this the dynamic, but it hasn't actually been studied in any depth. So I keep talking about da'wah and proselytizing activities. What, what, what am I actually talking about? What are, what are the nature of these activities? Wide range of things. Um, certainly, Saudi Arabia has and continues to provide a lot of money to build mosques. Um, there's a lot of complexity and different models through which they do this, however. Um, it, it, it is indeed sometimes the case that the uh, some Saudi entity provides money to build a mosque, and along with that comes an agreement that that Saudi source will also have a central role in mosque governance will be able to appoint the imam of the mosque, will be able to um, uh, uh, direct some of the content, the religious content that's produced in that mosque to um, specify particular texts to be used, right? There is that model, but often it's, it's a more complex case of give, give and take, um, where in some cases, uh, only the money is given to build a mosque. This was certainly the case in the early period, in the 1960s and, and 70s. Um, uh, you know, wealthy S Saudi families would just write a check for 
you know, a petitioner who comes from a Muslim community in Australia that doesn't have any religious facilities and makes a case and asks for support and a check is written and that's the end of the deal. There's, there's nothing specified and the community in question really shapes what goes on in that mosque. But there are hybrid models as, 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 as well, some of which track back into the realm of geopolitics and diplomacy. This is often the case in Europe, for example. So just to give a concrete example of this, um, uh, many, in many European cities, the, the sort of main central mosque in that city uh, has been set up through arrangements that involve diplomatic agreements between um, uh, the, the governments of, of key Muslim-majority countries. So for example, in London, the central London mosque in Regent's Park was set up uh, as a deal made between Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And the nature of that deal was that the Saudis would, would build the actual facility itself, but it, an agreement was made that the imam of that mosque would always be an Azhari trained scholar. Not necessarily an Egyptian national, but someone who comes from the Azhari tradition. And this was the agreement. Now, um, has the, in practice, has it always worked out that way? Not always, but, but the central point I'm trying to make is that, you know, um, uh, the, the mosque building is not always simply a case of Saudi Arabia build, putting up a building and filling it with particular material. That said, and this moves on to the second point here, um, there is there has been a lot of circulation of Saudi textbooks, um, religious textbooks. Um, sometimes they accompany the mosques that get built. Sometimes they are contributed to existing mosques um, and essentially given away for free where one of the organizations that I'm talking about, the Muslim World League or the World Assembly of Muslim Youth, will go around to mosques in uh, um, countries in the global south and essentially offer you know, an enormous package of religious materials and texts that they otherwise would not be able to afford free of charge, but it needs to be these texts. Um, the textbook issue is, is an interesting one to kind of uh, frame for a moment uh, just because um, uh, the textbook question is the one around which a lot of the policy engagement with this question has occurred. So for example, um, within the US State Department over the last 15 years or so, um, there's been a process of investigating and entering into dialogue with the Saudis about the content of these textbooks, with the US State Department commissioning various studies and reviews of the content of these textbooks, then showing those results to the Saudis, asking for them to revise the textbooks, the Saudis revising textbooks, uh, providing PDFs of the revised textbooks to the State Department for further review, um, and, 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 and an odd and interesting process. Um, and, and one that I actually think um, uh, has become something of a, of a sandbox that the Saudis are very comfortable playing in. Um, they're, they're very happy to have the US government reduce this entire question and issue to textbooks. Um, uh, 
because that's a dialogue space that they're comfortable in. Um, I don't necessarily think the textbooks are uh, the, the kind of the, the, the appropriate point of focus for understanding and, and addressing the broader question here. Certainly, Saudi funds have been used to, uh, yes, hire imams, um, uh, but also to kind of fund uh, regional and global lecture tours by religious scholars associated with the kingdom's religious establishment. Um, one of the most um, significant uh, forms of uh, Saudi transnational religious influence uh, occurs within the realm of religious higher education, um, where I think it's fair to say that the um, that that Saudi money has really um, shaped the political economy of Islamic higher education globally, um, particularly the Islamic University of Medina was established in the 1960s, um, provides very generous scholarships um, that enables um, students from around the Muslim-majority and minority world um, to come to Medina. And so, for example, um, what this means is that in Central Asia, for example, after the Cold War and kind of the re-emergence re of Muslim-majority Central Asian republics into the broader Muslim world, but you know, as those countries became reconnected with kind of broader trends in contemporary Islam, and you began to have young religiously observant Central Asian students wanting to study religion at the tertiary level, um, the chances that they would end up at the University of Medina, uh, International Islamic University of Medina, rather than say Al Azhar or a, another sort of classical institution in the country like Morocco. It, it, it's just but by virtue of the way that funding incentives were wired globally, it's much more likely that they would end up studying in Saudi Arabia than anywhere else. Um, I already mentioned the, um, the kind of religious proselytization layer that comes along with certain forms of humanitarian relief and social welfare activities. Um, and of course, the vast media support. Where is this going on? Well, I mean, the short answer is everywhere. Um, uh, with respect to South Asia, and I, I think it's fair to say that 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 Saudi religious influence in South Asia, particularly the funding that it has provided to a particular subgroup of madrasas in certain provinces of Pakistan it is, is the aspect of Saudi global da'wah that we that has been fairly systematically documented and recorded so we we do know a lot about that um, you know and this was a vector of connection that was particularly strong uh, during the tenure of Ziaul Haq uh, in, in Pakistan so really this is a story of the 80s um, and is of course part of a broader um, Cold War story uh, in which Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United States uh, were very closely aligned. Um, and this is, this is where, you know, some of the irony kind of comes into it, um, in that, you know, I think we see in this kind of Cold War story of U.S. engagement with Islam something of the kind of Janus-based nature, uh, the, the ambivalent nature of U.S. foreign policy towards Islam 
as a, a global force because during the 1980s, on the one hand, you had Washington deeply concerned about the Islamic Revolution in Iran, while at the same time, um, you had American intelligence agencies writing magazine articles that were then published in Muslim World League magazines that were being distributed in Muslim countries that were viewed as being at potential risk for communist insurrection, right? So there's on the one hand, the United States seeing Islam as a sort of new risk, a new threat in its Iranian instantiation, while at the same time, Washington views Islam as a very useful ideological counterbalance in certain parts of the world uh, due to what was going on in, in the Cold War. West Africa and the Horn of Africa, I already talked about the, the sort of dynamics around the growth of um, Christian Pentecostalism. Um, uh, Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia, um, where the Saudis funded uh, and continued to build up their funding of a large language uh, and Arabic language and religious uh, study institution, uh, Lipia, also the, the, the Philippines, um, Europe, I mentioned the London Mosque, that, that model repeats itself in a number of European capitals, but there's also a kind of interesting story of the generational sociology of Muslim communities in Europe behind this, because um, unlike Muslim immigrant families that came to North America uh, in the 1960s, usually to seek higher education, often, you know, to, you know, with with a with a sort of social mobility pathway that took them into professional vocations, Muslim immigration to Europe during this same period um, mainly involved um, people coming from former British and French colonies, often with very little or no education and skills, um, uh, and, and so this was a deeply disenfranchised, socioeconomically disenfranchised community that didn't have the financial wherewithal to build mosques or provide religious services. And so during those first two generations of significant Muslim settlement in Europe from the 1960s onwards, there was a disproportionate reliance on foreign benefactors, often Saudi Arabia, in order to, to provide that infrastructure. Um, uh, that's not to say that it was completely absent in the United States, in my own country, and, and in Canada. You certainly do have mosques, um, but also uh, religious academies uh, that were set up and funded by uh, Saudi Arabia, which continue to operate to, to this day. I already talked about the, the kind of rush uh, to um, uh, build influence, tendrils of influence into Central Asia in the aftermath of the Cold War as, as Muslim-majority parts of the former Soviet Union began to reconnect with the um, uh, Muslim-majority world. And there's a very interesting sort of piling on effect where you, 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 know, you see Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia all rushing in and <coughs> squaring off 
with each other, you know, trying vying for in, in influence in Central Asia. And of course, we can't forget the the Middle East itself, where um, Saudi uh, government bodies, as well as these parastatal organizations, have had a significant impact in providing funding for religious education. So we've talked about the who, who's doing this. We've talked about what they're doing and how they're doing it. So how then should we think about the impact of this, these activities? The, the research that I'm doing in, in this project um, is, as I've already said, not primarily concerned with trying to assess, the, to find an answer to the question of whether there is a kind of causal relationship between Saudi proselytization and dynamics of recruitment and mobilization around Islamic militancy. I'm actually much more interested in kind of questions around the broader impact on society. And so when you when you sit down and talk to uh, you know figures that are have been active uh, within the religious, within the Muslim communities in their, their countries over a long period of time um, and kind of talk to them about the cumulative impact of the Saudi influence, you know, what they often will provide you with is, is a narrative of a sort of incremental shift towards uh, a kind of more conservative form of religious discourse, a sort of reconfiguring of the grammar of theology and religious teaching, with greater and greater emphasis over time on questions of religious propriety, whether things are being done in the correct way, right? And so this is often then remarked on by those same informants as kind of a shift away from how we used to do things before the Saudi influence came, right? So, you know, we used to be more focused on, you know, spirituality and the kind of you know, the, 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 the inner emotive um, and holistic value and function of religion, but with more and more of this influence from the Middle East, you'll often hear people say, you know, we find ourselves spending a lot of time in debates about what's halal and what's haram. So, so a sort of re, a re, reconfiguring of the terms of religious discourse. Certainly, um, what you'll also common see, commonly have reported um, is, is an increase uh, in the extent to which um, uh, you know, practices around the modesty of women have changed. So um, in you know, places where, where women did not necessarily always wear hijab, they'll be wearing hijab. In places where they used to wear hijab, now they're wearing niqab, they're, they're in full uh, veiling. So sort of shifts with respect to uh, norms and practices around gender, um, often a, uh, some impact on kind of general dynamics around pluralism and tolerance in the broader social climate, particularly with respect to questions of religious minorities. Um, and, and so you'll, you know, you'll often have religious minority groups that, that we consult report that over time with what they perceive as greater Saudi influence, they have felt themselves subject to greater discrimination, 
um, uh, a greater sort of uh, likelihood that they will be kind of regarded and treated as an outgroup rather than sort of part of the broader uh, national society. Certainly, given the virulently anti-Shi um, uh, orientation of Saudi Salafism, um, there has been an enormous impact on dynamics around sectarianism in those countries where both uh, Sunni and Shia um, coexist. And this is where I think we can start to get a little bit of a handle on the question of the relationship between um, these influences coming out of Saudi Arabia and some of the other Gulf countries and the dynamics around social conflict in certain uh, countries. Um, and, and, and again, I, you know, establishing hard causal lines is very difficult to do, particularly in a sort of easy linear fashion. But the way that I've come to think about this and to, I think, observe it in certain uh, settings, including in South and Southeast a Asia, is the idea that where you have a pre-existing set of social tensions between groups and society, and where those tensions happen to play out along lines of religious demography, sometimes the arrival of these transnational religious influences can help to sharpen those conflicting identities and serve as a catalyst to kind of push uh, a sort of nascent, latent social conflict into something that's more active, potentially up to and including a violent conflict. Um, we, we also, of course, do have this tricky issue of trying to understand the relationship between um, uh, um, Wahhabi propagation and uh, the growth of and recruitment uh, of people into groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. So the question of what's the relationship between Saudi religious propagation and the broader trends around Salafi jihadi mobilization in, in the world. Um, and here, you know, you, you know, there have been a lot of anecdotal accounts of you know, particular mosques in places like Bosnia and Kosovo, where the imam at that mosque studied in Saudi Arabia and was known to be, you know, um, uh, very conservative, um, you know, preaching, if not openly in the mosque, on the sidelines of it, um, radical perspectives that encouraged or at least pushed, provided a sort of a push factor that, that sort of tended young people towards um, potential, you know, involvement in militant activity. It's been a very difficult um, phenomenon to study and to study with reliable data just because the question is so politicized, it's very hard to gather hard and fast data on it. Um, it you know, I, I, I think it's fair to say that there are certain religious facilities where the perspectives being offered in those um, uh, mosques um, uh, prime an individual uh, to then be easier prey for a recruiter working for some of these groups. 
Um, so my sense of how it works is less that the, um, the, the leader of the boss actually does the recruitment, but rather that the ideas and perspectives and the sort of theological grammar that is offered is then leveraged by recruiters for Salafi jihadi movements who gravitate towards certain mosques because they know that things are taught there a certain way and that they're likely to find in, in, in individuals that they can pull into to the movement. I'm conscious of the fact that these bullet points that I've just all gone through uh, are kind of broadly negative in orientation. Um, I, I, I think it's important to point out that there are many recipients of Saudi religious largesse who actually welcome it quite readily, particularly in parts of the world where they don't have access to religious texts or religious facilities or religious in infrastructure. <laughs> parts of the world where the state in question in its national development plans has largely left religion out of the picture. Religion is not seen as something you want to invest in as a state because it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't produce industry, it doesn't produce economic growth, and so religion gets sort of marginalized. And so, for many communities, being able to turn to a country like Saudi Arabia is the only way that they're able to fund and actually have uh, basic religious in in infrastructure. So, I, I want to be careful not to give the impression that you know. This is just transnational religious influence that 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 um, causes bad things to happen and that people don't like. So then, in order to wrap up, um, what are some of the kind of emerging themes coming out of this work? Well, I've I've already kind of nodded towards some of them. Um, one of the debates that we I've had to contend with, it's almost kind of methodological in nature. It's well, you know, as a social scientist who is trying to understand causation, how do I know that when I observe something in a given country um, that, that, that you know, how can I make the connection between that and Saudi in influence? Um, one of the common habits that you'll see people, uh, that, that, that analysts and observers of this space have adopted in recent years is to observe the global growth in Salafism around the world, and that's true, that's documented, and to assume that, well, Salafism is on the rise globally because of all this Saudi money for religion that's been washing around the system. And so that's how you explain the global growth in Salafism. I think that's a far too simplistic analysis of, of what's going on. It, 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 it completely overlooks the fact that there are, in some countries, um, in indigenous forms of Salafism that, that, that have nothing to do with Saudi money or Saudi religious in influence. Um, you know, in, in um, just, take, just take Pakistan, for example. Um, the Deobandi tradition in Pakistan, while it, it you know, has a certain specificity to it that distinguishes it from Salafism. Um, there are many aspects of Deobandism that overlap 
enormous, very closely with uh, Salafism. It's very easy for these two theological currents to cross-fertilize. And I think very easily a lot of Deobandism gets mistaken for Salafism and sort of um, uh, ascribed to Saudi influence. Within the Ahli Hadith movement in Pakistan, that is a properly Pakistani Salafi movement that has its own specific historical and autonomous emergence and you know is not can't be reduced to Saudi influences. I think there's also broader global there's a, there are broader sociological reasons why a lot of young people are drawn to Salafism today that have nothing to do with Saudi funding. Um, I think that for a lot of young Muslims who are searching for answers to issues that they encounter in life through a religious prism, and they go online and they consult Google and they ask questions and they get hundreds of answers, all conflicting with each other, all contradicting each other, and every single one of them seeming to be soundly grounded in Quran and Sunnah and Kalam, and it all looks authentic and real. So how do I know which is the correct answer? I, I think for a lot of young people, Salafism is attractive because it is able to represent itself as an authentic, grounded form of Islam that is safely moored in the life of the Prophet and explicitly rejects reliance on a use of sources beyond a certain historical period in order to ensure that authenticity. And so I think there, there are reasons in an age of media and informational overload why people, why young people would gravitate towards this. I think there's actually a parallel story to be told about the the seeming contradictory rise in influence of Sufism, why a lot of young people are turning towards what's often called traditionalist or neo-traditionalist is Islam. And of course, Sufism and Salafism are often seen as, you know, enemies, things that don't go together. So why do we see this simultaneous rise of both of them? Well, I think it's actually because they provide, they pro they provide different solutions to the same problem. They both provide a sort of clear, grounded pathway for young people looking for answers. So, you know, in doing this kind of work and trying to understand and engage um, the presence of Saudi influence, you also have to kind of figure out how to navigate through um, counterfactuals and, and possible alternative explanations for things that you're observing. I already mentioned up front that um, one thing we're finding is that many instances of things that we see going on outside Saudi Arabia and other countries in terms of religious influence is a product of um, uh, the kind of religious equivalent of an arms race between Saudi domestic entities that are competing with each other and trying to kind of become the most influential Saudi actor entity within a given country. So, you know, I think there's an interesting thing to be said about the ways in which looking at external religious propagation activities can actually tell us something about trends within Saudi domestic uh, politics. Um, another thing that's coming out very clearly in our work is the idea that in, in understanding the operationalization of these transnational connections and the impact of them, 
there's often an enormous gap between what is originally intended on the part of the Saudi entity that provides funding and some sort of intentionality for how that funding should be used and what actually happens on, on the ground. Because if you have in your mind some image of like a sort of Wahhabi wrecking ball that comes smashing through these sort of pristine, beautiful, local little expressions of Islam and destroys them, in practice it doesn't work that way. There is often a lot of negotiation and give and take. Localized religious actors often have the capacity to adapt and mediate the influences that come from Saudi Arabia and reshape them in ways that, that, that are kind of more attuned to local religious sensibilities. And also, one thing that comes out very clearly as you get into the details of things is that um, much of this money and networking um, and these activities that I'm talking about uh, take place through the channels and auspices of organizations that have within them individuals in senior roles that aren't Wahhabi and are actually beholden to other kinds of ideological projects. So for example, um, you know, if you follow the news today, one of the dominant themes of the last few years has been the idea of Saudi Arabia, along with the United Arab Emirates, working very hard to eradicate the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood, as a force within Middle East politics. Wasn't always the case. From the 60s through the 70s and the 80s, the Saudis and the Muslim Brotherhood got along just fine. That when, when the regime of Gamal Abdel Nasser began to crack down on the Ikhwan and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in the 1960s, Saudi Arabia opened Muslim, op welcomed Muslim Brotherhood figures into Saudi Arabia with open arms, gave them positions in uh, Saudi u u universities. Um, and that is what created this very strange hybrid religio-political discourse where Previously, almost exclusively politically quietist Salafism became cross-fertilized with, with the sort of the Islamist activist ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, producing for the first time a politically active concept of, of Salafism. Um, and arguably, that's a stronger explanation um, for uh, the eventual evolution of groups like Al-Qaeda, uh, than just Saudi mosque building money being thrown around the world. Point being that there was a time when the Saudis welcomed Muslim Brotherhood figures with open arms, gave them jobs, and indeed, if you were to look at the senior to middle management tiers of organizations like the Muslim World League and the World Assembly of Muslim Youth in the 70s and 80s, all of the people running those organizations, making funding decisions, serving as the brokers, moving money and influence around, were all part of regional and global Muslim Brotherhood networks. So the question then has to arise, to what extent are we also talking about Saudi largesse, financial largesse and resources um, that, that, is, that is kind of being filtered through um, broader agendas and efforts being undertaken by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, last point, and this is one that I think has kind of more 
implications for, I mean, it's an interesting analytical point, but has implications for policymakers and those who are kind of scratching their heads saying, well, you know, what, what should one do about this issue? Um, and I think it's about the importance of recognizing that there are a number of countries where people talk about the, you know, the enormous impact of Saudi religious influence, where that, where that, where active lines of connection between Saudi Arabia and those countries have effectively dried up. The money isn't flowing anymore. Um, but where there seems to be a sort of profound le legacy effect, right? And I think Somalia is, is a very good example of this. 1970s and 80s, you know, huge segments of the Somali religious sector were effectively bankrolled and controlled from Riyadh. Um, you find very little in the way of active funding flows for religion going from Saudi Arabia into Somalia today, and yet you will find so many Somalis that tell you that that, that period back in the 70s and 80s was like an earthquake in terms of how it reshaped religious sensibilities in, in Somalia. So, you know, when we're not necessarily always talking about active, ongoing lines of funding and in influence, but rather the legacy effects of transnational connections that were at their height um, and influence 30, 40 years ago. So, um, if this has piqued your interest and you want to kind of get more into the details following the kind of tasting menu of the issue that I've tried to provide you to today, um, there's a book coming out. Um, uh, it's an an edited volume uh, called Wahhabism in the World, Understanding Saudi Arabia's Global Impact on Religion, Oxford University Press, next year. First half, book is in two parts. First half of the book is a, a series of chapters that look at the, the historical evolution of the sort of global Saudi Dawah apparatus, in-depth case studies of organizations like the Muslim World League, the Islamic International Islamic University of Medina, looks at the sort of geopolitical periodization that I gave, looks at some of these methodological questions about how do you distinguish Saudi Salafism from other logics of Salafism at work in the world. Um, and then the second half of the book is a series of uh, nine in-depth country case studies uh, that look in detail at the historical experience, recent historical experience in those countries of the arrival of Saudi religious influences in various forms and the impact that it has had. Um, these, these chapters have been commissioned from researchers and scholars that, that I think in almost all cases are based in the countries in question and have in their own work observed very closely um, the, the, the kind of arrival and evolution of these transnational influences over the last few years. 